You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast produced by Veteran Strategies and featuring conversations with fascinating and impactful men and women who have shaped our world, our communities, and our history. My name is Robert Vane, Principal of Veteran Strategies, and your host for our discussion. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmond Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. You may find all your sales and rental equipment needs at McAllister.com. We are pleased to announce our podcast is now a member of the All Indiana Podcast Network in partnership with Wish TV. You may find Leaders and Legends at AllIndianaPodcastNetwork.com. Thinking of starting a podcast or need to host a public meeting? Let Leaders and Legends LLC be your partner as you look for new ways to communicate your message. Please contact Chris Spangle and me at leadersandlegends.net. Thank you for joining us on the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guest today is Brad Tolinsky. And let me tell you something. He has written a book. I've read it twice in a month. And it's called Eruption, Conversations with Eddie Van Halen. Brad's a longtime music journalist. He was the editor-in-chief of Guitar World magazine, the best-selling magazine for musicians in the world. He was there for more than 25 years. He's written books, Light and Shade, Conversations with Jimmy Page, and Play It Loud, an epic history of the style, sound, and revolution of the electric guitar. His co-author for this book is Chris Gill. Brad, thank you so much for coming on the Leaders and Legends podcast. Oh, my pleasure, Robert. Thank you for having me on. Uh, I mentioned both before we started and just a few seconds ago, I have read this book twice in about a month. It is a must read if you're a Van Halen fan, if you're a music fan, and kind of if you grew up in the 70s and 80s and 90s, and that was the time when you matured or stayed immature, as the case may be, <laughs> uh, your writing is is superb. The book is terrific. Uh, I have uh, written 5,150 questions. So we got 5150 here and I, I had to, I had to uh, call some of them to fit our time, but uh, let's start at the beginning. Uh, take us back so much when uh, Eddie Van Halen died, he passed away in October, 2020. So many of the tributes from other musicians were about the first time they heard eruption or the first time they heard Van Halen one. Take us back to the first time you heard both the record and the second track. Well, um, I was born and raised in Detroit, Rock City. <laughs> <laughs> and believe me, when that first record came out, you know, Detroit was on that. <laughs> I think it was Arthur Penhallow at WRIF in Detroit. They played it nonstop. And um, what I really loved about it, I mean, beyond the beyond the the sound of Eddie Van Halen's guitar is what attracted me to Van Halen was just how loose and funky they they were at that time like you had bands like you know Boston uh and Journey 
and the Eagles and rock music was getting tighter and tighter and more perfect. And Van Halen one comes out and it's just like, you know, it's like this incredible, uh, of course, these, the, the guys are playing great, but it just had a looseness and a freshness and an energy about it that I found incredibly exciting. You know, I still listen to uh, Running With The Devil, you know, that first track. It makes me laugh almost every time because it's almost on the border of chaos, you know, just David Lee Roth is screaming and Eddie's playing all these great sounds. You know, it was impossible to 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 sort of resist that. And then, of course, I was a guitar player and you heard Eruption and you really, really, it's impossible to explain of how that just turned the world on it on its head. Like you did not know what was going on. Like you were literally taking that record around to all your guitar playing buddies and saying, you know, how is this? How is he doing this? You know, it took us all a while to figure that one out. Neil Sean said that in multiple interviews. He said he said he went up to Van Halen, Eddie Van Halen, and said, "Okay, you got me." <laughs> and Neil Sean at the time was a brilliant guitarist. I think he played for Santana, was in Journey, and so it was certainly a, a a very famous and very skilled musician. But he just said, "I'm stumped." Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of guys responded that way, especially. Uh, Maybe Neil Schoen, who maybe made the mistake of taking uh, Van Halen on tour as as Journey's warm up band. <laughs> I thought it, it was the initial tour was, uh, I think, Van Halen. Did they tour with Sabbath first or Journey first yeah, on they, their big they, tour? Uh, they they toured with Sabbath first, and then uh, then they went on tour with Journey. But they were basically playing warm up for everybody that they they could back then. They were a triple bill in their first American tour, I believe. And it was um, Van Halen, followed by Ronnie Montrose, followed by Journey, who I think had just released the Infinity album. And I remember reading in an interview where, where Neil says to Ronnie Montrose, who's a pretty darn good guitarist himself, yeah. where Neil says, I'm glad you have to follow him and I don't. <laughs> yeah. Where were you? Fast forward. To 2020 uh, take us back to where you were when you learned of eddie's passing and did you know that it was imminent yeah um i knew uh ed quite well and um you know for you know 25 years 30 years i would usually speak to him at least a couple of times every year and even when i would go out to uh, california and and uh, I visit 5150. So, um, you know, I won't portray myself as being his best friend by any uh, stretch of the imagination, but uh, I did know him well, and I knew of his struggles, his uh, health issues. Um, and I did know that uh, in that last year, he was having difficulties. Everybody was preparing for that, including Ed himself. He realized how bad it was. He finally realized how bad it is. Like, I'm not going to beat it this time. Yeah. I mean, but what's extraordinary, I mean, hopefully you got this out of the book, is there's such an incredible arc to his story. And, you know, he went through uh, really dark times during Mm. uh, the early 2000s when he was initially coping with, uh, you know, with 
all sorts of problems, all sorts of issues, whether it was his sobriety and health issues and so on and so forth. And he was in a super dark place, but uh, sort of the, I don't know if this is exactly good news, but I think for fans, they should understand that his last four or five years had come to terms with a lot of those things. And he was in such a great place uh, before he died. And uh, it came through when he was on stage. I mean, I saw his last concert. I saw all the concerts with David Lee Roth after they got back together. But we saw him here in Indianapolis. I took my son. I said, who knows? I don't know how much longer Van Halen's going to be around. I think he was a sophomore in high school. I'm like, we're going. Mm -hmm. And it was a cheerful show. It was a lot of fun. You know, David Lee Roth was born here in in Indiana and Bloomington. So, you know, it makes one Hoosier to another and the crowd goes crazy. It was a wonderful show and and Van Halen. And if you look on these YouTube clips of that last tour, he's the Van Halen of 1984 and 5150 happy, smiling, playing off just insane. Yeah. So your points well taken. He he was uh, thrilled to be playing with his son. And I think dealing with his mortality really made him reflect on his life and all the people that had contributed to it. And, you know, whatever beefs he had with people in the past, I think he sort of had reconciled that in his mind. And he was talking very, very seriously in that last year of doing a huge Van Halen uh, reunion that would include, uh, you know, Mike Anthony and Sammy and and Dave and even Gary Sharon, um, which would have been incredible, you, but, his, you, but his health wouldn't let him go there. Yeah, they were interviewing Roth, I think, at the time, and they didn't David Lee Roth say something to the effect of, "I don't think Eddie's going to answer the bell this time." Like he yeah. didn't go into specifics, but he kind of made it clear that it's not everything that everybody was hoping for isn't going to happen. Do you really think that David Lee Roth and Sammy Hagar could have existed on the same? tour that would have been something well i think under those conditions they probably would have i mean they knew uh that ed was struggling and um you know that their baby wasn't a lot of time left and i think under those conditions that those guys could have somehow their egos would have fit into the <laughs> into the volkswagen of of rock and roll <laughs> yeah the bus you have to be a bus <laughs> Going back to your book, we're talking with Brad Talinsky, who wrote the book Eruption Conversations with Eddie Van Halen. And then I have several other books by, you know, Zoslauer and others who have written that Eddie Van Halen book where the forward's written by Slash and, you know, on and on some photographic history books. But is it possible? And these books all, all mostly consist of quotes from Van Halen's contemporaries or admirers. Uh, but is it possible to overstate uh, Van Halen's contribution to music and the guitar? And at a certain point, do you just run out of superlatives? Um, I hear you. You know, I mean, rock criticism probably couldn't survive without a pocket full of superlatives. <laughs> so, so you can get like a little burnt out on that. But uh, as you noted earlier, I, I wrote a book on the history from the very beginning of the electric guitar. So I have a really strong understanding of Edward Van Halen's contribution to the instrument. Um, and 
if anything, uh, I think it has been a little bit underplayed because it's a little it's a little complicated. It's a little difficult for somebody that doesn't play guitar to understand, you know, what he brought and how he reinvented the instrument. It sounds like you're being uh, you're exaggerating or you're creating, you know, false superlatives. But um, he did really from top to bottom completely rethink this thing that was very, very familiar to most people. And it's really hard to do. It was interesting. Um, a guitar company actually came to me a few years ago and, um, you know, basically posed the question of what, what could be, what's something new that could be done to the electric guitar? Mm. You know, they were sort of trying to figure out. And, uh, I took it very seriously. And I can tell you, it's just so incredibly hard to come up with something new for something so familiar. And Ed uh, not only thought of one or two things, he literally reinvented the instrument. And to this day, the thing that he created, this sort of hybrid between um, a Les Paul and and a Strat, is still the number one best-selling stylistic electric guitar uh, on the market today. When you read the, the tributes to him, and we're talking about Eddie Van Halen, who Queen's guitarist Brian May said that Van Halen's playing represented the pinnacle of guitar playing in my lifetime. And Jimmy Page on his death called Eddie Van Halen the real deal. Yeah. How, how did established guitarists react we talked just a little bit ago about journey but established guitarists react when they heard not just eruption but van halen one in its entirety there was a little bit of jealousy but then there was a whole lot of like hey we needed a fresh shot in the arm and this kid's giving it to us yeah i mean i think uh, what really came through from ed was that he wasn't uh, wasn't a gimmick. I think that they all appreciated the tone and the different ideas that he brought to the instrument. Um, this is many years ago, but oh, I don't know. Gee, I think it was actually actually in the year two thousand. <laughs> it's twenty years ago. Uh, <laughs> I did an interview with uh, Jimmy Page and Jeff back together in in the same room, and we talked about. Uh, um, Van Halen, not, not long, but we we mm. had a substantial conversation about Eddie's contribution. And you know, I know I'm not, I don't mean to keep dropping names, but I know those guys quite well. And if they thought that somebody wasn't very good, they would certainly let me know. And they were both incredibly enthusiastic to what uh, Ed brought to the instrument. I think you hear a little bit more of that in, in Jeff Beck's playing, you know, his manipulation at the whammy bar and stuff like that. But, uh, you know, for both of those guys who had nothing really to gain by saying nice things about sure. Van Halen, you know, they, they understood. And the one thing that came out when reading uh, the terrific book by uh, Greg Renoff, Van Halen Rising, which I don't know if you know Greg or have read the book, I'm kind of guessing that you've delved into it a little bit is one of the things that really knocks you on your tail is I think Eddie Van Halen, was he 22 years old when Van Halen won 
came out in February of 78. Yeah. So, so, so songs like I'm the one and which to me has his, if not his first, not his top guitar solo, it's certainly in the top two or three, in my opinion, mm -hmm. but a lot of these songs, these amazing songs, this amazing guitar playing, he'd been playing that for years in people's backyards. Yeah. It's just phenomenal. Well, one thing that I wanted to uh, accomplish in this book was to, again, show the, uh, the incredible arc of Eddie Van Halen's career. And not only that, but that he was uh, an interesting and sort of complex individual. And where all of this starts, where all of it begins, as you go back, um, and Ed and Alex, not many people really know this, aren't from America, aren't from the United mm -hmm. States. They were immigrants. And uh, when they first came to the U.S., when Ed was seven or eight years old, he couldn't speak any English. Uh, and he was bullied and picked on and uh, in school. He was just basic. They were both thrown into school, <laughs> if you can imagine, not being able to speak English or understanding it very well. And, and that came, uh, it came through in your book that they were segregated. Yes. They were the yeah. school with the black kids. And, and Eddie has said in multiple interviews and on TV, the white kids were the ones who bullied him and the black yeah. kids were the one who stuck up for him. So it was a, it was actually a terrible situation, but the, the positive that came out of it was that Ed retreated uh, into, he was a brilliant kid and he wanted to communicate. And he couldn't, didn't have the words to communicate. So I think he channeled a lot of that into playing the piano, playing the guitar. And he went into his bedroom and practiced and practiced and played and played. And this went on, uh, you know, from the time he was, again, you know, seven, eight years old. So, you know, by the time he hits 22, he's already put in his 10,000 hours that mm. makes a person a a, a genius but still at the same time you know again we're not just talking about him being a great fast guitar player we're talking about how he how he couldn't he couldn't find the sound mm -hmm. he couldn't find the sound that he wanted out of the guitars that he would pick up off the shelves in the music stores and we're, we're talking a 12 year old so he's he's <laughs> saying okay i guess i'm going to have to build my own guitar you know, and he so, kind of laughs about all the ones he destroyed. I've destroyed all these great guitars because I took a chainsaw <laughs> to them or a hammer and a chisel. Yeah. There was no finesse there. Um, <laughs> th there's a story in the book that's that's really, really, uh, it's one of my favorite stories in the book. Um, and uh, I interviewed Steve Vai for uh, this book, who um, has a really direct connection with Ed in, in many, many ways. Uh, the one that most people might be familiar with is that he uh, took over Ed Spot, so to speak, in David Lee Rossford's solo project. And in that, he had to play uh, a bunch of Van Halen songs. So he really, he really knew and understood what it took to play, you know, an Eddie Van Halen uh, guitar part. But even before that, um, Steve introduced Ed to Frank Zappa, the, the, the great progressive uh, composer and guitarist, and brought Ed over to Frank Zappa's home, to, his, to Zappa's 
then unheard of, like he had a home studio. Mm-hmm. And they sat around and they started playing guitars. And um, at one point, one of the strings on the guitar that they were passing around was buzzing. And Steve goes, oh, well, maybe you should get a different guitar. You know, this one, the string's buzzing. And Ed was like, looked around the room and grabbed a screwdriver off of Frank's desk, shoves it under the nut of the guitar, and the the, the string stops buzzing. He does this thing where he just takes a, a basically a screwdriver, just jams it into the guitar to stop the string from buzzing and says, oh, we don't have to get a new guitar. We'll just... <laughs> We'll just use this one. And so now they're passing around a guitar with the screwdriver sticking out of it. You know? And uh and Steve goes, that was Ed. Like, not only will he find the solution, but he isn't gonna wait for it. He's gonna do it then, there, now. If that means taking a chisel to something or a screwdriver, he's just gonna do it, you know. Uh, let's let's ju- let's on that same theme, let's jump to something that I thought was actually to use a word. Um I thought was maybe the sweetest part of your book. And that's the discussion about Eddie Van Halen and his friendship with Les Paul. Oh yeah. Clearly they loved each other and admired each other. And I think there's the quote in your book where Les Paul says to Eddie Van Halen, there's only been three game changers or three innovators. It's you, me and Leo Fender. Very much. It seems like a father figure a musical father figure to him in a way that maybe his own father wasn't go ahead, please. Well, they, they were Ed and Les. I mean, I knew Les pretty well too. They were cut from the same cloth. You know, it was this sort of, um, uh, they, they both had sort of this earthy sense of humor and sort of a working class approach to, uh, getting things done, you know? <laughs> um, but, uh, Les and uh, Ed also had this thing in common. They were, you know, two of the few guitar players in the history that were not only incredible players. I mean, people, I don't think, are quite as aware of Les Paul's playing these days as, Mm. uh, you know, he was a superstar. He was the Eddie Van Halen of the 50s, Mm. so to speak. Um, and, And an inventor and innovator. Uh, so they got along on on so many different levels. And and Ed told me, like, this wasn't a rare occurrence. It was a pretty regular occurrence where Les would just get some idea in his head. And, of course, Les lived on the East Coast. And he would just call Ed, who lived on the <laughs> West Coast. And Ed said he'd wake up at 3 o'clock in the morning and, and it would be Les on the, on the other end of the phone saying, <laughs> Ed, I have this idea, you know. <laughs> Well, that tribute that's, I think maybe it was on Cinemax. Yeah. I was in the army when it came out. So it was probably 30, 32, 33 years ago. I was talking about the amazing lineup of guitarists, but, but the, the guest who starts the show, the first guest, as I recall, that comes on is, is Eddie Van Halen. He plays hot for teacher with uh, Tony Levin yeah. and Jan Hammer, uh, yeah. but the affection between the two of them. And uh, for those of you who either haven't made it to this point in the book or looking to, uh, read something completely and totally fresh, a different side of Edward Van Halen. Wait till you get to the end where, where they, this interaction, uh, Brad does a terrific job of bringing out the mutual love and caring and admiration. Uh, Because as Les Paul told Eddie Van Halen on that broadcast, you've changed things. 
And I can only imagine what it would be like for a guitarist to be standing there in front of hundreds, if not thousands of people and have Les Paul tell you, you change things. Yeah. I mean, I don't think this gives away anything either, but it's funny uh, for as much as it's been written about Ed and um, I haven't seen anybody else make this point. I found it fascinating when I, when I thought about it, I didn't even think about it until I started writing the book that uh, the great innovators of the electric guitar, which is uh, George Beecham, who invented the first electric guitar called the frying pan, Leo Fender, Les Paul, uh, uh, Bigsby, and Ed Van Halen all created their instruments within sort of a 30-mile radius of each other in Southern California. You know, there's this geographical and spiritual connection between all these great electric guitar innovators. And uh, and I think that they saw Ed as part of that very, very special elite circle. Was your book, Eruption, was it in the works before Eddie's death in October of 2020, or is it a subsequent project? Um, it's, it's, it's a little bit of a fuzzy question because uh, Chris and I had been talking about it, uh, you know, maybe a year, year and a half, if not a little bit longer before Ed passed away. And um, I'd actually pitched a couple of different book companies on it. And they weren't particularly interested at that point. And then when he passed, uh, you know, as is the case in, in most media, then everybody became mm-hmm. interested. So um, both my very, very accomplished co-author, uh, Chris Gill, and I pooled together all of our resources and, uh, you know, felt we felt this obligation. Um, you know, people might see it as opportunistic, but we felt that the first book out on Ed the first substantial book on it had to get it right. You know, there's certainly a lot of gossip out there. Uh, Anybody who's read Valerie Bertinelli or uh, Sammy Hagar's book, know sort of the dark side that had had some, a bit of a dark side or the endless stories about the arguments with David Lee Roth or Sammy Hagar. And Chris and I knew Ed so well that, we just did not want a book of, uh, you know, gossip to, to, to come out. Now we knew that that's, that's part of his story and it's, and it's in our book, but we felt almost obligated to present the full picture of Ed and his genius and talk about, you know, the music as well as his personal life. And so you know, we were just determined to get that out and done quickly. And there was interest in it. So, um, you know, we worked really quick, but in many ways, the book had been 30 years in the making. You've read the articles and the social media reactions to Edward's passing. Yeah. How did, how did the praise heaped upon him, heaped on him affect you and and Chris and, and your approach to the book? How did it influence it? Because I mean, the, the quotes from these monster guitarists and musicians, they're just, some of them are so beautifully written and heartfelt. You can tell that, 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 
that Van Halen's passing at age 65 was a real gut punch to them. Yeah. Hmm. Well, they didn't really, I, I can't say that they affected me. Um, I, th- I thought that y- you're right. A lot of them were, were lovely and uh, insightful, but I, I felt, and, and I don't want to, you know, I, I don't want to be, uh, feel pretentious about this, but I felt that a lot of them were also cliched. Like they went for the easy, you know, uh, so, sort of benchmark uh, cliches about, you know, Eddie and his playing and the tapping and this and that. And uh, maybe, maybe it affected me because I did want this book to go a step deeper. And, um, you know, I wanted people to see sort of the bigger emotional picture and the more complex picture of, of Ed than just this sort of smiling guy who could play the guitar like like no other. One of the fun, which I think maybe, like you mentioned men and their man crush on Eddie Van Halen. I'm <laughs> uh, probably like you. I unashamedly shed some tears when I both heard the past and uh, read some of the Tributes. One of my favorites is when Pete Townsend from The Who said, "I want him to be president of the United States." (laughs) You got to read the Constitution, there, Pete. But I get it. He probably would have been okay. (laughs) There's a there's a terrific interview. There would have been a lot of more guitar playing in the United States if Ed was was the president. (laughs) Oh, too funny. You would have had. You would have probably had a gigantic Marshall amp built in the middle of the uh, 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 of DC. I think. (laughs) <laughs> there's a terrific interview with uh conducted by howard stern yeah. of billy corgan i don't know if you've seen it it's on youtube it's really really good and corgan talks about when he interviewed i think it was for guitar world i think yeah corgan was. interviewed van halen mm-hmm. in the mid 90s uh, and it's a terrific interview if, if if anyone wants to look it up it's really good but yeah. one of the things that corgan said in the interview with Howard Stern that I want to ask you about mm-hmm. is that Corgan said, and he was an unabashed Van Halen fan said that when Van Halen realized that Corgan could actually play and play well, that, that Eddie's attitude towards him changed. He said, basically I was welcomed into this other club, the guitar club who could, I could actually play. Yeah. You're a guitarist. Yeah. How did your knowledge of the instrument being able to play the instrument, uh, enhance your relationship and maybe the openness of Eddie Van Halen when you talked with him? Uh, it was, in, it, I think it was essential. Um, uh, I was there by, by the way, at, uh, for that interview with Corgan. Oh, you were? And, and, and he sort of, he sort of sniped at, at us a little bit in the interview by saying like, Oh no! They thought that I needed that they I needed a babysitter or something. He says was, that to Howard. In the Howard, have you seen the Howard yeah, Stern yeah. interview? Yeah, goes, yeah, yeah. They were he, scared he I was going to ruin the relationship or whatever. Yeah, <laughs> that that's that's just I, I I will say, I actually like Billy, but that's a bunch of horse. But anyways, <laughs> <laughs> we weren't worried about anything, uh, you know. But he wasn't a professional journalist, and we knew certain things that we would need to get, and I was there. And I will say one thing about 
that encounter was that at that time, Ed was um, allowed us to play the Frankenstein through his Marshall. And that was, wow. That was a lot of fun. Um, So anyways, getting back to your question. May I ask uh, another quick question real quick, because you're so up on these things. Mm -hmm. A guess, a guess if Wolfgang was to sell the original Frankenstein, Mm -hmm. how much could it get? Just as a guess. Well, what did what did uh, Gilmore got like? What was it like five million or something for hit the the white strat that he used on all the like dark side of the moon stuff? Um, I think Frankenstein's even more historically significant and iconic than that guitar. So, um, provided you know some lunatic out there with a lot of money. <laughs> So, so if Brad Tolinsky, probably a, you could probably get a good a good seven mil for that. I would think if you were a billionaire yeah. and instead of going to space, you decided to buy the Frankenstein. What would you pay for it? At what point would you drop out of the bidding? Well, you know, if I had unlimited money and it didn't, then I, I would hang in there until I could hang in there. You know, <laughs> probably the second most famous instrument. But then, but then behind I would the Hopner bass. But then I would put it, I would, hmm, it's an interesting question. I mean, I would play it for a little bit, but then I would want it to be shared and put in some sort of historical mm-hmm. place of historic significance. And, uh, you know, that would help people understand what the significance of that guitar is beyond its red and white and black stripes. <laughs> I asked you a question and I interrupted you. Forgive me about it. No, it's my fault because you mentioned the Frankenstein and I was just wanting to know how much you thought it was worth. Probably the second or th- first or second most famous instrument in rock behind McCartney's bass. Maybe, maybe Lucille for BB King, but right up there. Nah, I would even say because the, the Lucille thing is weird because there were many Lucilles. There isn't just one. I think the original actually was lost in a fire. Mm. Um, you know, you you it it would compete definitely with say Jimmy Page's double neck or the the yeah. acoustic uh, guitar that he played on Stairway to Heaven, which I've also played. <laughs> and you've lived a life. <laughs> that was Brad. one of the three. That's it. Listen, one of the greatest things about being the editor in chief of Guitar <laughs> World for so many years was to get my mitts on some of these guitars. But it was also the most terrifying thing too, oh. because you have Jimmy Page standing there. And or Eddie Van Halen looking at you when you're playing their guitar. The question is, what do you play, Robert? What do you play? <laughs> yeah, what would you play? What did you play? Um, I didn't play Stairway to Heaven or try to play Eruption on their guitar. That's that's for <laughs> sure. <laughs> they both love Jeff Beck. I guess you could have played something from Beck. <laughs> that's true. It's true. Um, I don't know. I did what probably nine tenths of guitar players do when they get a guitar in their hands, which is they just start noodling around. And I, you know, played some, you know, a little assortment of some of my better licks and, uh, you know, but, but actually I test guitars by playing like, you know, some open, good open G or A chords just to hear it ring out. And I did some of that too. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, 
Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Our guest today is Brad Tolinsky, author of the brilliant and necessary book, Eruption, Conversations with Eddie Van Halen. Brad, give me your David Lee Roth era Mount Rushmore of Van Halen songs. Just four. Yeah, I've 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 been giving that a lot of thought lately. And um I think my favorite ones are well, you know, you you can't ignore eruption. I mean, you have to. The book's named after it, for God's sake. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's sort of the big bang, right? Mm-hmm. You know, it was the track that, uh, um, you know, basically kept guitars guitarists busy for for the next couple decades afterwards. So, and and not only that, but it does have this one of a kind, beautiful sound to it. Mm. You know, that is somewhere in between the greatest electric guitar you've ever heard in, in like a Stradivarius violin or something, mm-hmm. you know, it's a beautiful sound. But if, if you go online, if you go on YouTube or go in discussion groups, it's almost universal. Yeah. That, I mean, everybody that, can play it. Everybody that can Spanish play it. fly is yeah. harder to play than eruption. Do you think Spanish fly is harder to play than eruption? Spanish fly is the acoustic guitar solo that's on Van Allen too, which is, if you listen to Zach Wilde talk about it from Ozzy Osbourne band, he says, quote unquote, how can anyone get that effing good? Yeah. Well, you know, um, it, it, it might be, but, you know, eruption has the edge for being, it may not be harder, but it's definitely more significant. Sure. Uh, you know, when you ask, when, when I ask you about your favorite Eddie Van Halen sounds and tracks, you're not going to pick out the acoustic one, I don't think. <laughs> no. no. Um, but the other songs that uh, I like, and, and I, I touch on it in the book a little bit, that doesn't get, I mean, people know it, but it doesn't get much attention in terms of the actual guitar playing on it is uh, Beautiful Girls. Uh, I just... It unlocked beautiful girls thinking about it when I was writing this book, unlock something for me in, in mm-hmm. this, you know, while I was writing, um, I was trying to, I mean, I know a certain, I know my share of music theory and, and, and guitar techniques. And, um, I actually even have a background in classical music. I play violin too. Um, but I was having a hard time wrestling with, what made uh, Eddie's guitar playing so unique? Because he doesn't play like, uh, you know, sort of standard blues scales and, and things like that. He had his own, he created a bit of his own vocabulary. And I went to a couple of different guitar players and, you know, Steve Vai is one and who's in the book. And you Brilliant, know, beyond we, brilliant. We, we talked a bit about that, what made him special. And, and Steve had some good insights, but it wasn't until... I was just going through and I listened to beautiful girls without the vocals. I was just listening to the isolated Mm -hmm. tracks, which is available online. And it just had these wild assortment of bends and growls and, and zany guitar sounds. And, uh, and I was like, I get it now. I understand Mm -hmm. what makes Ed different. 
okay, basically, I feel like he was responding almost to David Lee Roth's, because he's a sensitive musician, to mm-hmm. David Lee Roth's, his front man's persona and sort of wacky asides. And his guitar playing is almost uh, a soundtrack to David Lee Roth's wild observations. Mm-hmm. And if you're a if you're a great musician, a sensitive musician, and you were thinking about this from scratch, what would I put behind David Lee Roth? It's almost like scoring a Bugs Bunny cartoon, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I thought that's it. Like like uh, Eddie's playing. It's sort of like a Looney Tunes cartoon soundtrack mm-hmm. to David Lee Roth's uh, Bugs Bunny, you know, <laughs> in, in a sort of way. And you know. What what happens when when you have David Lee Roth in front of you? You can't play blues licks. You can't play anything standard. You have to come up with a new vocabulary. And I think I'm I'm not attributing Ed's genius to David Lee Roth, but I'm saying it was his response to David that probably pushed him in a different direction. Because then when he and and you really hear that on Beautiful Girls. Mm-hmm. I mean, literally, if you listen to the isolated track, you will laugh. <laughs> you know, the sounds are so fun and, and outrageous. And when, to me, that's when Sammy Hagar comes in. Sammy Hagar is a different songwriter, a different singer, has a different attitude. And you feel Ed's guitar playing change a bit to also suit and accommodate that new, you know, that new musical vocabulary. So uh, Beautiful Girls, to me, was a significant track. Um, and I would also say one, when people are talking about the greatest Eddie Van Halen tracks, mm-hmm. they take the solo for Beat It for granted. Um, but it is a weird solo. It's like a combination of, of the avant-garde jazz of John Coltrane meshed with Chuck Berry somehow. Do you and, think they, they take it for granted? Because in every interview, Edward Van Halen just downplays it. Like, well, whatever. It's like he was going to the grocery store. Yeah, I decided to just pick up some eggs. We're like, yeah. no, look what you did. And, and it's hard today in 2021 when there's so much crossover in music. I was a sophomore, freshman or sophomore in high school when that came out. That pairing of the guitar and then the actual song itself is unheard of now it's constant but then it was like as, as ad van halen said himself who knew i was going to play on this black kids record yeah, yes yeah but it wasn't just the mashup of of ed van halen playing on an r&b record it the solo itself is mm-hmm. wild it's it's very strange it's perhaps i dare anybody to find me a stranger solo on a pop record let alone what are the biggest pop records of all time? And that's what really makes that track super daring and intriguing and makes Ed such a genius is that he could put something so wild on a standard pop song and still have everybody love it. And so, he loved music uh, so much. He did it for free. Yes. And he did it for free. So that just, just very quickly, I won't go into as much detail, but uh, my other tracks is of course, mean street, fair warning great yeah. record and um just a song that i love and ed's playing on it is is great it's not groundbreaking but it's great 
is somebody get me a doctor. I just love that song. Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you, you can, you can play that for me anytime and I'll totally get revved up, you know, Sammy Hagar, Mount Rushmore. Um, so, uh, for Sammy, I want to, I would encourage, uh, people out there to really go to the best of both worlds, greatest hits record. Uh, because down that record, Eddie recorded three new tracks with Sammy Hagar. And I think that they're among his best guitar playing, uh, you know, uh, of his career, really. Uh, there's a song, Learning to See. And again, these things get overlooked. But Ed was really on a roll. Like, Learning to See uh, has one of Ed's most wildly psychedelic solos in it. I mean, I'm sure everybody's scratching their head, but go back and listen to that song. And, uh, you know, I, you, you'll you'll be blown away by it. I don't know. Somehow it got lost uh, in, you know, uh, I guess in the fact that it was just a greatest hits record. Mm -hmm. But the three songs that Ed put on there um, were not tossaways they were really great um i love uh, uh pound cake uh just a great song i think terrific um trying to think of what else i i'm loving by um by sammy uh i would judgment. say you, you know, talk about judgment day in your book oh yeah judgment mm -hmm. day i love that um but you know as you know if you've read the book I'm a great defender of or encourager <laughs> of people to go revisit Van Halen three with Gary Sharon. There are some magical tracks on that record that, that got lost and everybody wants to dismiss that record as, as somehow a lesser work, but there's some great, great guitar work on there. There's a song called ballot or the bullet, which comes towards the end of the record. And Ed is playing some of my favorite slide guitar I've ever heard. Like you don't really think of Ed Van Halen as playing slide guitar. Mm. He didn't do it very often. And you go back and you listen to that track and you're like, my God, he could play that on half of the songs. And I would be happy if he is played it, slide guitar. Is it could be, could it be magic? Is that the other one he plays yeah, slide yeah, on and women yeah. and children first? Yeah. One thing that I want to make sure, and I, and I put a big giant pink star by it. Mm -hmm. uh, this question because it it really to me is an under an understated yet constant theme in your book mm -hmm. and, and that is the relationship between eddie and his brother alex yeah one of the things that's always impressed me about alex um, you know some people say he's you know, he's he's an underrated drummer and people talk about how powerful of a drummer he is. So perhaps maybe the opinions are on a different uh, sliding scale, perhaps, but, but it seems that Alex has handled or handled the immense fame and veneration of his brother in a way that not a lot of people have throughout history whether they're musicians or whether they're kings or queens, that he understood how terrific his brother was at his craft and took all the praise uh, that Eddie received from a foundation of love. And it doesn't seem to have hurt a relationship at all 
Am I right? Please correct me if I'm wrong. No, they really, I mean, I don't know whether you got this. I hope you did. But one of the sub themes of the book is how important family in general was to Ed and I'm sure to Alex as well. Again, they were immigrants and they came here to the U.S. and they didn't have anything but each other. And they weathered so many storms, especially in those early years. And they played together so much that there was a genuine um, symbiotic relationships. And, and, and Ed never, I mean, part of it was Ed never uh, missed an opportunity to talk about right. how important Alex was to the band sound. Now, Ed got a lot of the attention because, hey, if you're the if you're the guitar player, you're just going to get more <laughs> attention. You're 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 in front of the stage, and people like me that were editing guitar magazines, <laughs> <laughs> the drum magazines weren't weren't nearly as popular as the guitar magazines. So so Ed was constantly in the spotlight, and but. Uh, you know, as much as he could, he would always talk about Alex. And I think Alex knew and appreciated that. But the interesting thing is they were both diff very different people. And Alex was very impressive uh, because of, you know, I I'd call him sort of stoic, you know. I mean, he, mm -hmm. uh, Ed was a very, uh, um, you know, emotional person uh, on a few, more than a few occasions when I would talk to him. And we would be talking about music or things. He would he would actually burst into tears, like when he was getting upset or mm -hmm. emotional about certain circumstances in his life. Ed felt things very deeply, and I'm sure Alex felt things deeply too. But he process processed them different, and he was much more active on the business side of things. And he was always the guy trying to sort of level out Ed's emotional response and so i think that that's just sort of the way alex was built i mean he he understood uh his brother and he understood the nature of fame and he took it for what it was and felt like he had gotten enough recognition uh in return but i i do have to say this um and this was one of the you know, like such a great, profoundly cool musical experience on my part was um, when the band, you know, reunited with Sammy Hagar and we're getting to ready to go out on that tour. I was actually invited to one of their rehearsals uh, at, uh, you know, a rel it wasn't a small place, but it was essentially the band and me. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and initially I was, you know, I was first, I was totally blown away by um, how great Sammy Hagar was as a singer. I mean, you really, when you're up there, you're that close, you hear mm. how great his pitch is and, and yeah. how strong he is. But, you know, Alex was playing drums and I was in that room with him. And I don't know why, I mean, this sounds so stupid because I had seen them live, but something about being in that room. I was like, whoa, that's the sound. That's the Alex Van Halen sound. That sounds just like Alex Van Halen. Well, of course you 
freaking idiot. I mean, it is Alex Van Halen, <laughs> but he has such a brilliantly distinctive drum sound and a, and a different feel and such a distinct feel to it. That's such a big part of the Van Halen sound, but being in that room somehow made me appreciate it or see it or feel it that much more. And that's the Brown sound in interviews that you did or your magazine yeah. did Van Halen referred that the Brown sound wasn't his sound. It was Alex's snare. That's yeah. the Brown sound. It's like hitting a log. That's what I would say. <laughs> uh, let's talk about, uh, we have a few minutes left. Let's talk yeah. about the, uh, uh, other member of the original Van Halen. It seems that Michael Anthony has ascended to almost martyrdom status. Yeah. Do you agree with this characterization? And if so, how did it happen? Well, you know, I've given a lot of thought to this too. And, um, you know, uh, in the book, uh, we have two interviews with Mike and I conducted both of those. And they're, Uh, and they're brilliant and they're real. And his comments about Ray Daniels took me, their former manager. That was the hardest punch I think he threw, but you did a terrific job. And there's only so far he would go clearly. But uh, when I'm reading that, I just got a sense of, of some hurt. Yeah, for sure. He was hurt. He was genuinely confused. Uh, But the way I see it is this, um, to be fair, to uh, add, to be fair to the Van Halens for some of their comments about Mike, some of them are completely unjustified. Like when Ed would uh, somehow besmirch Mike's playing, that's just wrong. I mean, Mike is a Mike is a monster. I mean, and if you listen to his bass playing, which you hear a lot better on the reissue, the remastered uh, early records. I mean, he he he's awesome. On, uh, on the first few Van Halen records and the rest of them. He's a great, great player. But the way the band was set up was that if you had uh, an argument, say you had a disagreement, the brothers were always going to side with each other. And then you have David Lee Roth, who is no shrinking violet. <laughs> so I think it was just sort of human nature that the weak guy gets hurt you know like i think you make the allusion to john paul jones and led zeppelin who's just like look when plant and page aren't getting along i'm just i'm switzerland let's just play yeah let's just play and i think it was just easy for them to sort of take out their frustrations on on mike but at the same time um you'll see in the book like there's an evolution of ed throughout the as Van Halen evolves and grows and uh, Ed is responsible for the lion's share of the music in the band. And by the third or fourth record, he starts getting a little resentful about how much responsibility that he has. Like, you know, everybody's looking at him and saying, you know, where's the riff said, you know, come up with this, come up with that. And Ed feels a lot of the pressure and um, and sort of begins to resent it a little bit. And when he's looking around the room and he says, okay, that guy's getting a quarter of my money. This other guy's getting the quarter of the band. Money. I'm getting the same amount of money mm. 
for these songs is Michael Anthony. I don't know. Something doesn't add up here. And you know what? If it was me, I would probably be feeling sort of the same way. Does, you Mike, the- does Mike Anthony deserve as much as I do for bearing the brunt of, you know, all of the songwriting? Forgive me, but do you ever get the sense, because I've never read this in any interview, that more was asked of Michael Anthony. I mean, was there an affirmative ask? We need you to do X, Y, and Z, not only to help the band be better, but justify your 20, 25%. That's what I haven't ever read that they asked something of him and he said, no, I don't want to do that. Yeah. Well, I was sort of hoping that people in the book to so would sort of read between the lines. I mean, you know, Ed is no saint and, uh, there, there is a bit of a hypocrisy there because on one level, Ed complains because he doesn't have control and he wants to have all the control uh, on the records. And then when he has a control, he sort of complains about having all the control. <laughs> so, That's exactly what I got out of it. Like yeah. you can't have it both ways. You can't say it's my band. It's my name. And then, you know, how they treated Michael Anthony towards the end, you, you mentioned in your book, really it, with the 1984 tour, I just, it would, I would have more sympathy for that point of view for what they did to him. Yeah. If they had asked something of him and he said, no, I don't want to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Believe me, Ed didn't want to give up any of that. You know, he, as much as he, as he said that he re- resented uh, have, bearing the responsibility, you know, anybody reading this book will sort of read between the lines and, mm-hmm. and say, you know, yeah, buddy, I could just see Mike Anthony coming in with a riff and your response to that. <laughs> so so Mike, Mike was in a, is, is in a bit of a no win situation, but I think anybody that's been in a workplace or uh, in some sort of social group can probably relate that there's always, yeah. you know, there's always somebody that uh, maybe gets the short end of the stick. Quickly, were you, because I want to ask one more question about your book, and then we end yeah. the podcast with the same five questions of everybody. Very quickly, were you surprised at all at Van Halen's continued success when Dave left and Sammy joined? Or did you think, oh my God, this is, Roth is leaving Van Halen? This is the death knell. You were you were immersed in the band. I mean, you knew them all. You knew the music scene as well as better than anybody at the time. Did the continued success with four number one albums, did that surprise you? If I'm being totally honest, I will say it it, it didn't surprise me because uh, Ray Daniels, I interviewed Ray Daniels mm-hmm. in the book, who was uh, Van Halen's third manager. Mm-hmm. And he addresses this. And I, I thought he was pretty correct, which is. You know, Ed was the star of the show. You know, like there was no way, especially after 1984, the success of that, that guitar players or rock fans were going to stay away from whatever Eddie Van Halen was going to do next. Uh, And, you know, basically all Ed had to do was make sure that his guitar was on there and the songs were decent, and it would be a success. Well, you know what? They they exceeded that. Mm-hmm. They wrote 
really good songs. Uh, they actually shifted the band a little bit to fit more in with the times. They did all that. They made all of the right moves. Um, but I think people would always tune in to see what Eddie Van Halen was going to do next. Um, you know, was I surprised that it was, uh, you know, initially a bigger record than 1984? Yeah, that surprised me a little bit. Your book features interview interludes, which are some of the best parts of the book. And mm-hmm. the interludes are with Michael Anthony, uh, the guitarist for Black Sabbath, Toby, Tony Ioni, a brilliant session guitarist, and obviously the front man or the lead guitarist for Toto, Steve Lukather. Brilliant. Steve Vai. I think Vai and Satriani are kind of the best of the Van Halen, you know, next generation birthed by him. Nuno Betancourt, of course, Paul Gilbert, too. Manager Ray Daniels and a a really heartfelt interview with Gary Sharon, who, if you've never seen the live version of Mean Street from Gary Sharon from Australia, look that up on YouTube. It is the best live version of Mean Street that you will see. Uh, What made you include these uh, interludes? And did anyone say no to your request. Um, you know what? Not one person said no. I mean, I didn't, we, we picked our, our quote unquote targets very carefully. <laughs> um, I, I would have loved to have David Lee Roth uh, talk, but I knew it wasn't going to happen. Uh, you know, he's just incredibly, uh, you know, he, he'll do interviews on his own terms, but when you call him, it's just hard to get a hold of him. And I knew that from years of dealing with the band that it wasn't going to happen. So I didn't even really bother to go down that road. And his interviews are kind of a mess. I hate to say yeah. that because I'm such a fan, but it's like he doesn't ever actually answer the question. Exactly. Exactly. But um, to me, uh, you know, Tony was an important person because Tony Iommi from Black mm-hmm. Sabbath because he was there was the first band that that Eddie toured with and even though he Van Halen basically wiped the stage with Black Sabbath every night Ed and Tony forged a, a friendship that went over many years so I, I thought it would be interesting to to talk with Tony in some depth um uh you know ray daniels was crucial uh because he was a guy that managed during the most confusing time of van halen which is a great word that's a great word the 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 comings and goings of sammy hagar david lee roth and gary sharon and and um and and ray had been portrayed as a, a a sort of a villain uh and i'd never heard his side of the story um, you know, some people thought that he he engineered getting Sammy out of the band. I don't believe that that was true. Um, and he, they think that he was the guy that engineered getting Gary Sharon in the band. <laughs> and he didn't really push that agenda either. In fact, he was a little shocked when they did bring Gary into the band because uh, Ray also managed uh, Extreme and he also managed uh, Rush. Uh, so, uh, but Gary Sharon. Um, and Van Halen three is a pivotal moment in the career of Van Halen. Uh, it's a record that 
a lot of people don't like. It's constantly rated as the worst Van Halen record. Um, but I find it a, an extraordinarily interesting moment in, in Ed's career. Um, because on Van Halen 3, it's when Ed got everything that he wanted. He got complete control over the recording of the record. He got choice of producer and he picked somebody that would basically be a yes man to him. Mm -hmm. And he got to pick the singer that he wanted. And he even played bass on a lot of the tracks and even on drums on a couple. Of, it was essentially a Ed Van Halen solo record. And when that record ended up uh, not being a success, it contributed to uh, mm -hmm. to Ed's darkest period in his life. And I felt it was very important for people reading this book to understand what led Ed down this darker path in the, in the 2000s. Um, but also why Ed cared so much about that record. He was devastated when it wasn't mm -hmm. a success. And it was literally the first record that wasn't a success in Van Halen's entire career. But it came at a terrible time. He had just gotten sober. Uh, he was wrestling with his sobriety. And then the record fails. That's one blow. He, he starts having serious, serious health issues mm -hmm. with cancer. Another blow. Valerie Bertinelli leaves them another blow. Um, any one of these things would have uh, could have taken down a lesser mortal, but to have all these three or four things sort of hit him at a single time was devastating to Ed, who is, you know, a very sensitive like human being. You think and that iteration of, of Van Halen would have been more successful had they toured first? played the old songs, a mix of the Hagar Roth songs, and then made an album? Well, you know, um, so anyways, I'm sorry. I, I was sort of meandering a little bit there, but that was one of the reasons why I wanted to talk to Gary Sharon, the, the lead singer of Van Halen 3. I wanted to understand that period and understand that record better because people just want to ignore it almost like, Oh man, you know, it's like mom and dad getting a divorce or some, some <laughs> terrible thing. Like they you know, just want to sweep it under the carpet. And uh, Gary gives us incredibly thoughtful yeah. uh, interview it's about terrific. that period and, and, mm -hmm. and his, his part in it. Um, uh, I'm sorry. What was your the question? No, one of the things that I've read, about Van Halen three. I agree with you. I like yeah. the album and, mm -hmm. uh, but some of the comments that I've read on different, like the Van Halen news desk and stuff like that are, and I used to subscribe to the inside. Remember that oh, yeah. that news magazine Absolutely. 25 years ago. Anyway, uh, all hail Jeff Hausman and everybody there who was involved with that. But if, if Sharon and Van Halen had toured, first oh, right, right. played all the you know of all the raw songs that everybody wanted to hear who had never heard or hadn't heard in decades along with some sammy songs build up a fan base and some excitement and then produced and put out a record do you think that could have just as a guess could have made a difference it it it, it would have helped um i think it that would have helped i think gary even says the second record that they were working on was a much more um, conventional record, you know, and it would have been easier 
for the fans to uh, understand what they were trying to do. Mm. And he thought that Van Halen three would have made a good, better second record, a following mm. record to that. So it's, it's almost the same point as you're making, like maybe if they would eased fans into the water a little bit, it would have been better, but you know um, that's only hindsight. You know, when you, when you look at what was going on at the time, you had fans of Dave, who loved Dave, and then he's gone. And then somehow they managed to magically transfer over to Sammy and he builds up his own fan base. And so you have some people that like it, some people that don't, but anyways, he builds up his fan base and uh, the fans are settling into that. And then all of a sudden Ed blows that up again. And now we have another singer and you have, disgruntled fans of david lee roth and sammy (laughs) i don't i don't like this i don't you know so i think it would have been difficult under any circumstances for anybody for any singer to have stepped into into that because you've just alienated probably two-thirds of the audience you know to begin with and uh you know poor gary was just basically thrown into the lion's den um, but you know, the, 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 the funny thing about it is, um, everybody goes, well, why didn't Ed see this? Why didn't Ed, why didn't Ed just do this? Why didn't Ed do that? And what, what's really funny is, so there were certain cliches that Ed would bring up almost every time that I spoke with him. And one was this is every time we would try to sort of drag them to back to talk about say Van Halen two or some, some older song, which mm-hmm. inevitably we, we sort of would being fans, he'd say, you know, God put your eyes in front of you for a reason. You know, you're supposed to be looking forward. He goes, I like all that old stuff. It's cool for its time, but I want to be looking ahead. You know, I want to mm-hmm. be looking. And what Ed was trying to do with Van Halen three was to evolve. The, 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 the problem I have with it is that he should have had the guts to see it through. If I had any criticism of, of Ed, like he shouldn't have, if he really believed that he wanted to go to some sort of new place, he should have sort of sucked it up and just like any artist followed his followed his direction he had already had enough success but again there's so many other things that were happening at that time that i hope that i conveyed in the book he was dealing with the failure of that record but also with a lot of health issues and also wrestling with his sobriety and also wrestling with his marriage i mean there was so much stuff going on at that time i don't think he could really see uh things in a clear way You've reached the point in the Leaders and Legends podcast where we ask the same five questions of all our guests. Today, we're talking with Brad Tolinsky, co-author, along with Chris Gill, of the terrific book, Eruption, Conversations with Eddie Van Halen. Uh, Brad, are you ready? These are quick and painless. I promise. (laughs) Okay, okay. Bring it on. What was your first job? Uh, Kmart Shoe Department. Well, this is a good one for you. What was your first concert? Uh, 
first really sort of big time concert that wasn't just some like local band mm-hmm. was uh, Joe Cocker. My first concert was at El Paso in El Paso, Texas, when I was in the army. Van Halen, OU812. Ah, yeah, that's a good one. Number three, if you could suggest any book for someone to read, which book would you recommend? Feel free to recommend Eruption. Um, well, we all know that, uh, you know, Eruption is great as you have, <laughs> as you reinforce, you know, um, what's, what's another good book that I've, I've read recently. Um, a friend of mine, uh, former, uh, if, if you guys love Van Halen out there, I have to recommend this other book written by co-written by two of my cohorts at Guitar World, uh, Tom Bojour and uh, Rich Beanstock, called Nothing But a Good Time. And it's an oral history of hair metal in the 80s. And it is hilarious. You know, <laughs> you, if, if, you got, if, if you love if you love Van Halen, you know, uh, and you love that era of music of Van Halen and Motley Crue and Poison and, and and all of those kind of bands. You guys will love this book. Go out and get it. Number four, if you could witness any event in history, be there as it happens, which event would you choose? Um, what would I choose? I would I would uh, I would love to be there at the Eureka moment when uh, when Ed Van Halen constructed the first Frankenstein took took the took the strap body the neck put it together put that humbucker on and hit that first chord I, I would uh, I would enjoy being a, a fly on the wall for that last question if you could have dinner with anyone living today living today whom would you choose who would i choose to have dinner with you know this is one of those things where you say that it's where it's easy <laughs> um living i would uh i would like to have dinner i would like to have dinner with paul mccartney that would be a, a you know, as a, as a music dude, I would like to do that. And I would ask him all the questions that I thought Rick Rubin missed. (laughs) (laughs) Valerie Bertinelli said in her book, uh, you're a good man, Ed, referring to her ex-husband, Eddie Van Halen. Uh, Once you realize that you'll be free. Do you think in the end he realized it? You know, I do. Um, in some ways that made me a lot less sad about Ed's passing is because, uh, I spent several days with him when he was at the bottom in those troubling days, um, in the two thousands. And I genuinely feared for his life. Um, and I, was trying to wonder why nobody was helping him more, you know, why they weren't helping him more, but it, it's difficult, you know, uh, when you're somebody as strong willed as, as Ed is, you know, you have to want to be helped, so to speak. 
But then um, I hung out with him uh, about a year before his death in New York. And he was in such a better place. He was in such a good place. And I think like actually coming to grips with his mortality helped him review his life and uh, appreciate everything and everybody that had helped him along his way. You know, sometimes facing your mortality, maybe it makes you, you bitter, you know, but I think in Ed's case, he really uh, loved his life. He loved playing with his son Wolfgang in his band. That was a huge, huge thing for him. Um, you know, in the book, we have this great back and forth mm-hmm. with Wolfgang and, and Ed, and you can just see, you know, uh, such a great, you know, a hilarious, normal relationship that they had where where his son Wolfgang is sort of dismissing him. <laughs> Dad. <laughs> Facebook you know. is for old people. <laughs> <laughs> but but uh, Ed loved that. And I think, you know, I'm sure his end towards the end, it was painful. It was all of those things. But mentally and psychologically, he was in a much better place than he had been for years and years. And I think the fans could take some comfort in that. He's basking and, and certainly bolstered in the love of his son and the love of playing with his son. Yep. You have been listening to leaders and legends, a podcast presented by veteran strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise and sponsored by girl scouts of central Indiana, Garmond construction leaders and legends, LLC, the grand hall and conference center at historic union station, the McGinley's golden ACE Inn, and McAllister machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Our guest today has been Brad Tolinsky, author of the seminal and absolutely brilliant book. It'll make you smile. It'll make you laugh. And for me, at the end, when I knew that was coming, it made me tear up. And the book is called Eruption, Conversations with Eddie Van Halen. Brad, thank you so much for your time. It's been a real treat. It's an honor. Well, uh, thank you for having me on your wonderful show, uh, Robert. I really appreciate the thoughtful interview. Thank you very much for listening to Leaders and Legends, brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated. If you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services, please send us an email at robert at veteranstrategies.com. That's robert at veteranstrategies.com. Veteran Strategies.